full contact cannabis. Dr. John, my name is hey. Harold Jarbo. I'm AKA the old hemp farmer and one of the co-hosts. All right. Dr. John, do me a favor and introduce yourself. Sure, I'll, I'll, get, I'll introduce myself. Um, I'm Dr. John Thompson, uh, founder and CEO of Extract Lab. Uh, been basically in the business of putting people into the cannabis processing business for or cannabis and or hemp uh, since 2014. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been a great ride. Uh, we've done that. Uh, we've put lots of farmers into the business of extraction, which is, has been really great for them. Uh, they're able to really update their crops, up, upgrade their crops. Uh, you know, um, you know, sell the oil. Uh, some people have their own, you know, boutique uh, brands that they sell out. So it's really for a way for a farmer to get, uh, you know, kind of upgrade the profit that they're getting. Um, and we've been doing that. We also put pharmaceutical type of companies into the business, and we have done that for many years. Uh, our number one um, business base is in Canada, obviously, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, like medical type of companies up there. But uh, we've also put into the business uh, a lot of the multi-state operators. And um, I was involved in the founding of one of those, um, the one in Minnesota. Um, was involved in the licensing, um, co-founding that company. Um, and uh, we got one of the two licenses in Minnesota. And uh, we went on to New York and got one of the five in New York. And since that time, that company has uh, kind of exploded throughout the whole United States. They've gotten licenses in, in Pennsylvania and Maryland and um, purchased another company that had assets in Arizona, for example. So um, they're currently publicly traded up on the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange. So it's been, it's been an interesting time for me. Um, you know, we've kind of kept, uh, I've kind of really focused my business on, uh, you know, on the equipment side, getting people up and running in terms of processing, which I did for um, Vireo Health, uh, which is the company I just was talking about. But uh, from a research standpoint, um, United Science has also put a lot of uh, time and effort into building out a large five ton per day um, processing facility. Well, look, can we go, this is a great point then to go back yeah. to the early days. Yeah. The early days of, you know, when I got into, I've been a high THC boy for a couple decades. Yeah, okay. So I got into uh, hemp in 2014. Sure. And basically, when we transitioned from high THC to high CBD, the profit model was based upon the high THC model, right. which at that point, where if you were doing processing 50 to 100 pounds a day, that was more than adequate to fill any of your needs that you could sell. Right. It really was an interesting time because the profit model then was so much different than the profit model now. Correct. Talk to me about like, well, 2014. I mean, also, yeah. why did you decide to get into, into extraction? Right. Well, um, okay, I'll answer that, that question first, and then I'll go back to the profit model. Um, essentially, uh, what, what we were in, I w I'm a trained, uh, you know, separation scientist. Uh, that's what I do for a living. And um, you know, back in uh, the early 2000s is when I, I kind of popped out of school. I spent a lot of time, you know, building, um, you know, like separations style membranes and all that type of stuff. And um, they 
uh, our company got bought. And so I went over to another, you know, area, went into marketing and ended up doing a lot of like uh, mergers and acquisitions work. Um, that kind of got me along the lines of maybe I should be an entrepreneur myself. So I went out and uh, started my business and uh, we, at that time, we were basically um, doing anything and everything to make money. I mean, we, we worked for NASA. We, um, we worked for Exxon. We worked for a lot of very large companies. In fact, um, Ecolab would be one of them too. You know, we're building stuff, okay, hoping to hit the, the jackpot. And uh, right around 2014, uh, my old buddy from college came to me and said, hey, you know, John, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to do this license. You want to do it? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Let's do it. So that's when I started to so write the license. What, what, uh, what license was it? Well, it was a license for uh, cannabis operations in Minnesota. They, in Minnesota, they limited them to two okay. licenses. So, so, yeah, you, so. You, so I'm trying to get the transition. Was it yep. from the equipment side or was it that you, once you got in and you got your license, you had to fulfill being able to get the tech to be able to do that? Yeah. So, um, so what it was, was I, I, we were building equipment before I got into the cannabis industry and, um, but it wasn't very tailored to the cannabis industry. We were doing separations. We were doing, um, you know, um, you know, selective materials, that type of thing. In other words, we were um, separating out, you know, different compounds, making pure amounts of those and then detecting them on a large scale. In 2014, when my pal came to me and said, hey, let's go write this license. Then we started to look at that market because we had, we had a whole bunch of cannabis we had to process. And so I went around and I looked at all the different uh, pieces of equipment that were available on the market. And I kind of looked at them uh, from the standpoint of reliability, from the standpoint of, you know, what was going to get us the uh, amount that we needed. And so I thought, well, we'll just build our own. So that's what we did. And uh, we built... Uh, extraction equipment like CO, supercritical CO2 extraction equipment. We were doing uh, cold ethanol separations at that time also. Um, we did a whole bunch of that. Um, distillation equipment a little bit later on. So did those um, so, have, yeah. at the time, did they have, when you were doing the, were you like doing cryoethanol? Um, no, we were doing it at minus 20, minus 30 degrees. Um, okay. And that, yeah, we, we just wasn't economically viable uh, at that point in time. Because that's uh, kind of what we're, I'm trying to find out here. Yeah. And the people especially is, because yeah. at that point, we had, you know, that transition on the equipment. Right. And basically almost all glorified RSO at that time, other yeah. than CO2. So... Yeah, so did, we did, did a whole bunch of work on that. Did you reverse great. engineer your stuff or did you start, have some start from scratch? No, we started from scratch. We got a big reactor with a, a Huber chiller, uh, which was a programmed Huber chiller, and we, we started to work on it. Um, the, the, you know, we, what we did was we had our uh, supercritical CO2 that we were running, and then we had ethanol right alongside it. We did the, we did the operational costs for both uh, systems, and that kind of actually uh, set in a lot of ways the direction for um, my company for the next ever since that time. So um, it was really difficult to compete, for example, on an operational cost with four cents a pound CO2. And it still is. I mean, the, um, so the issue at the time uh, with a lot of the companies is just didn't what they weren't really deploying a scalable technology. Um, a lot uh. of them were, you know, so there, so you could do maybe, you know, 50 pounds a day, 
you could, but there were very, there weren't any systems that could go up any further than that. I mean, it was um, not a, you know, it was all, you know, typically four to five hour, um, you know, or even 10 hour long extractions. It just wasn't scalable with the amount of power, the footprint and the, um, you know, the different, you know, ways of doing it. So what we did and what we innovated there is just taking all of our run times down to one hour and uh, increasing the vessel size so that we could really, um, so that we could make it scalable. So that, that's really what we ended up doing. And uh, yeah, so in, and in that way, we're still doing that on the order of say five tons per day, for example. And we're in- Let, Let's yeah. go back to right there when you drop down that five to one hour. Now are yeah. we talking about hypercritical and you guys increased the pounds per square inch and so you were doing hyper, like over 5,000 pounds, was that? Yeah part of it? Yeah, that was part of it. What was your breakthrough? Well, uh, really wasn't anything. I, I don't know why. I mean, just a lot of people at the time didn't really look at the science of it. I, I don't know exactly why, what kept the, the CO2 industry in such a, um, such a, uh, you know, small state. I think a lot of it had to do with uh, who the customers were, to tell you the truth. So, at the time, you know, a lot of the customers were looking for benchtop or they were looking, and they still are actually, but, um, you know, there weren't a lot of like multi-state operators, people with larger, um, you know, say 100,000 square foot facilities like you find up in Canada who needed a, a, a bigger capacity. So I think a lot of uh, the innovation at that time was driven by um, the majority of the customers, which were small scale. And then the competitors that were in the field at the time once you address that, it's really hard to, you know, take the next step and make it bigger and bigger and bigger um, without changing your whole entire paradigm and how you're engineering the system. So we started from, this, from the ground up, um, kind of set our sights at, you know, kind of looking in the future and said, hey, you know, people are going to be wanting to process a ton a day. And at the time, we weren't thinking of hemp. We were thinking of um, like processed trim. Um, and, you know, because the California market at the time was, was, was booming. It still is booming, by the way. <laughs> it's, just, it's not as bad as what people, you know, think it is. But it's, uh, you know, people were really processing like a ton of trim a day. That was pretty common. Um, so, we'll, so we're back 2014, 2015. Right. So right. are we talking 50 liter vessels, well, 100 liter vessels? What, what, when you first made that big jump? Yeah. And you had that one where you were cranking out numbers. How many liter vessel was that? Well, we started out, interestingly enough, with five liter vessels. Okay. So it was pretty small. And uh, the innovation for us was you could do five liters uh, at a time and you could do it in less than an hour. So, um, you know, that was a big leap at the time. Um, believe it or not. Like a lot of people were doing, you know, maybe 10 liters in six hours. So um, what we you know, we were, we sold a lot of systems basically just with people who wanted to, you know, go faster. Okay. And get more and more cannabis out more and more trim. And, you know, since the trim was, they weren't necessarily um, extracting the flower, they were kind of extracting the, all of the trim and everything right. they needed to do a higher throughput to get the, the oils out, you know, so, and a lot of people were throwing that trim away at the time, you know, they had big, big barns of it. You know, I had a good friend um, up in Northern California. He would feed it to his pigs and then butcher the pigs, um, you know, and have a cannabis bacon. Um, 
I'm not kidding. It's, it was crazy. You could actually measure the cannabis in the, in the pig fat, but not after, obviously, um, <laughs> after you well, cooked it. But so pretty interesting. So we're at that point, we have Eden Labs, a bunch of people yeah. that are doing the five Eden, Apex. Yeah. Eden, Apex, yep. When did you make the first big leap? Well, I think that the big leap was um, really on the runtime. So like Apex, Eden, those guys were in there. MRX was in there at the time, they, although they kind of fell off, uh, you know, and they had this huge 100 liter vessel, for example. And they, um, they were all low pressure. So um, what we did was we just went up to high pressure and we started off with a 20, uh, went from a five liter to a 20 liter vessel. And we were doing 20 liters, that's eight kilograms per hour with one vessel. You know, that's eight kilos an hour. So you can really, um, you know, put several of those together. You can do a half a ton with three of them, put it in a row. Uh, you can do a full ton with six of them. And um, so we went from 20 liters to 40 liters. And then, you know, at, at the end of the day, we didn't go anything beyond that because there's a law of diminishing returns on the, uh, you know, on the size of the right. vessel. The larger the vessel, the harder it is to pack you need to pack it in in a certain way so that it doesn't channel. And a lot of the, the companies that were doing like 100 liter vessels, you'd put them next to our 20 liter and the 20 liter would be go through more oil per day than the 100 liter would. So, so what do you think is the speed limit as far as vessel size? Well, I think it's a, it's a good um, balance. Okay, first of all, a lot of people, you know, if you go back to 2014, we were just literally throwing in trim without grinding it or anything, just you know, you just throw it in, see how it works. We ended up um, cryo grinding everything, you know, just to get the particle size down. So that's a big deal too. Um, if you don't do that, you're going to get a lot of channeling in your vessels. And that really leads to lower extraction, longer extraction times, and less uniform extraction, less recovery. So a lot of what we did were just, you know, common sense things like, okay, grind it up. A lot of people were went from um, no grinding at all to like uh, granularizing, which was be like coffee, coffee sizes or somewhere around their coffee, you know, particle size. Um, but we went down to like 200 microns. Um, and that really made a huge difference um, because you could pack more in per vessel uh, because the packing density was really great. And then, and then number two, it wouldn't, with that type of packing, it wouldn't channel. So the, you, you know, you could literally see when you looked at the vessel, if you stopped it halfway through, you could see a uh, basically an oil front halfway through the column. And it was really cool. You take it out. Oh, look at there it is. It's halfway done. Okay, put it back in there and see what happens. And then take it out in three quarters of an hour. You can see three quarters of it done. So it literally went up um, like a like a front, um, like a oil front would migrate up. So it was pretty cool. And we would typically, you know, if you tested all of the, you know, the recoveries by, by looking at the, um, you know, looking at the extracted material and see how much was left in there. You, um, like a lot of times we got non-detect. You couldn't, you couldn't detect it at all. So we're getting 99% plus efficiency. Now, um, we did. Oh, can, um, I, can we clarify that? Yeah. When you say 99% efficiency, it yeah. means you're being able to capture 99% of available cannabinoids? Right. That's pretty spiffy. Right. Yeah, that's pretty spiffy. So and that it's would a, it's it's way above the industry norm. 
Yeah. So we typically, what we recommend is in, okay, for THC, typically you're looking at 95 to 97%. That's what we specify. For CBD, because of the way it extracts, it's a slower extractor. It's less soluble in CO2. Typically we, um, and if you want to keep that one hour runtime, typically you're looking at 90% to 95%. So it's a little less um, efficient on the uh, extraction recovery with the CBD, but the THC is, is really good. I mean, the stuff just flies out of there. And, um, you know, so there's different things that you can do. I mean, the industry norm, um, and that had a lot to do with the large vessels, a lot. Like, um, like we would test, um, we would take samples out, you know, on that big vessel that I just mentioned to you, the 100 liter one, you could take the samples out of the bottom and out of the middle and also radially along the column, uh, along, the, along the length of the column, and you could see that it was, it was channeling. So you could see that um, the, the particles were too big, so it wasn't really packed well. And how do you pack a 100-liter column anyway? In other words, when I say pack, I mean, yeah. what I mean is if you just pour it in loose leaf and just like let it percolate, it's not very good because, you know, the liquid will find its own channel it'll find its least path of resistance and then it won't, it won't extract the other stuff very well. So, and that's, that's, it is um, exaggerated when the tent, when the, basically when the pressure goes down. Well, so, okay, you know, yeah. that's, those are yeah. the things. It was very, I don't, you know, really, I don't think extract lab is a, you know, a major, major, major innovation over what was already known in the literature. It's just, we just did it. Okay. You know, so we, you're, yeah. you're, right now your biggest vessel that you sell at your company is how many liter? Well, we have an 80, 80 liter system. And, is that um, 180 liter or nope. is that 420s? It's 420s. Okay. All right. So <laughs> you're picking Yeah. The, the, the twenties are, are pretty, they're, they're pretty, uh, they're fast. They're fast. I like okay. them. They're, they're manageable. And uh, yeah, we set them up so they run shotgun style. Two of them are filled while two of them are waiting and then they go back and forth like this. And um, in other words, while well, one is done then the other one's all ready to go. So there's always, always two of them running at the same time. And uh, yeah, we, we were, you know, thought, oh, well, we're going to make a big, big, big vessel. And uh, we just try to figure out how to pack it properly and everything. And the, you know, we would have had to have a stair um, case there. It just got to be ridiculous. And it really was kind of outside of our industrial design yeah. criteria. And we thought, you know what, it, this is, this really works. It's super fast. Literally with uh, three of those 80 liter machines, you can do, you know, a ton a day. And, you know, and for the market that we're in right now, if you're doing a ton a day, you're doing pretty good. You know, if you're actually putting those out into CPG products, um, you know, a lot of people have a combination of like wholesale products and, and CPG products. Okay. That they, they would do. So, um, you know, very rarely do people do like much more than two tons a day. Well, and occasionally you'll find someone crazy like me doing five tons a day. <laughs> well, I got two more, two things I want to talk about. And sure. one is the, you know, the importance of an extraction artist. But since you come in and mentioned the five thousand pounds a day, yeah, the hemp industry daily had an article they published just today that mm -hmm. there's probably going to be thousands of CBD companies full. Yeah, and that's the yeah, other thing. That. We live in Tennessee. Um, here in Tennessee and Kentucky and North Carolina, the major 
processors of all either underwater or in bankruptcy. Right. So, yeah, and I, I feel that that's a major, a major contribution to that is their high operating cost model. Well, they, no, I mean, well, I'm, uh, yeah, I can see that, but they're literally in North America right now, tanker trucks worth of crude and distillate sitting in warehouses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, tanker trucks. So, so how much actual processing do we need in the United States? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. I mean, a lot of people want to control the process themselves. Uh, a lot of people want to, um, you know, want to control the process themselves. They want to, you know, do other research, like take other minor cannabinoids out. They want to do things like that. So if you have, you know, a lot of like farmers, they'll do small things. They want to upgrade their crop, sell it at a, sell it at a profit over above the, you know, price per pound that they would get from the, you know, from the biomass themselves. But to answer the question about how much uh, processing capacity you need, um, I think that you really need to think about the um, overall size of the market and where it's growing, going. And uh, like, for example, certainly the prices are going to come down. That's great for the consumer because there's more competition. A lot of people are going to go out of business because of their high cost operating cost model. They're, um, you know, and there's a lot of people who are just actually should be out of business because they're bad actors. I mean, they, you know, the tanker trucks that you're uh, referencing, you know, they're, those are ethanol producers. And, you know, quite honestly, I, I feel that those are not good for consumers just from the standpoint of residual, residual solvents. Whoa, whoa, and whoa, like whoa, that. whoa. <laughs> That's how I we gotcha. No, no. I gotcha. So, yeah. I, so you tell me your product's superior if I run it through a uh, short path two times? Well, um, you can always see the residuals uh, in there. If uh, I run so it through you, a short path two times. Yeah, absolutely. I see everything. I'm an analytical chemist. I, I see it uh, all. If you have heptane in there. In no, your, no, no. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, yeah. We use anhydrous USD ethanol for our extraction. Okay. Where are we getting the heptane? That's perfectly fine then. I don't have any issues with that. But a lot of, yeah, I'll tell you, a lot of the people going out of business, they don't use that. They use denatured ethanol. Well, and uh, yeah, but what I'm saying is I'm kind of getting a rosy scenario mm -hmm. that right now, and, and since you make processing equipment, mm -hmm. there's a huge amount of people cannot charge enough to process to be able to make money. And I'm talking about right now, $15 a pound. Mm -hmm. Right now, that's what people are, are ha having to, to process for to be mm -hmm. able to get customers. Yeah, that's the, that's no problem with the CO2. That you're making lots of money doing that. Hold it, lots of money. So you, mm -hmm. I have my building, okay. my employees. You should go onto our I, website. I, we have I, a calculator on there and so, you'll see, what, so, just run it. But what I'm trying to see. get is that basically you're saying is that 75, 80% of the people that are processing now are bad business people. Well, they haven't looked at the full business in terms of operating costs. And if you're running like a anhydrous ethanol, you're paying a lot of money for that ethanol. And it's, it's really hard to compete with four cents a pound on CO2. That was the calculation that I made in 2014. And then, and then so, since whoa, then whoa, time, whoa, whoa. So yeah. four cents a pound. Mm -hmm. And that takes into account all, all my... That's just the cost. My, no, the, no. But what I'm saying is, by the time I put in my building, my labor, mm -hmm. my insurance, 
my mm-hmm. compliancy cost. It's mm-hmm. not four cents a pound. No, that's, I'm just talking about the main no, but, contributor to overall operating uh, costs being I, uh, yeah. the loss of ethanol. Well, and if you. Okay. But yep. what I'm saying is, what about the guys running CO2 they're going under? Well, um, I don't know about those guys, but I, I mean, I mean, our customers seem to be doing pretty good. So I, I'm not sure exactly what it is. I think that has a lot to do with um, you, you really, a lot of people got into the business. They had a low, low um, amounts of money that they had to put to get in the business. And then they didn't have a set of customers lined up to lined up before they got into the business. And then they start getting all this oil and they're like, okay, well now what do I do? Oh, I have to, I have to have salespeople. I mean, we've had some of our customers who hire, you know, a bunch of scientists, for example, and, and they're like, oh, well, what am I going to do with the oil now? Well, you got to hire a sales guy to, to sell. Don't, didn't you have, a, you know, that's something that we don't do. We don't do. We don't provide that for our customers. But people who have start off from the sales side, they start off from the demand equation. And then they look at that and they say, okay, hey, I have customers here, here, and here. I'm going to line them up. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie the investment to that customer base. Those are the people that are still operating. No problem. And those typically, you know, because of the amount of money that, uh, you know, CO2 equipment costs, which is more, way more expensive than, you know, than ethanol equipment, no question about it. Um, you know, they typically had those, um, those business parameters really worked out because their investors made them. There are literally thousands of companies this year that are going out of business. Mm-hmm. And you sound like you, you're insulated from that? Well, I mean, I would say at least 60% of our customers are in Canada. So that, that's one reason why we're insulated and, from and it. They, and, I, and I know the Canadian market. It's yeah, in it, worse shape than the United States market. There's probably not more than one or two companies publicly traded in Canada that are actually with a positive cash flow. Well, that's been the way. That's, that, that has nothing to do with uh, underlying demand. The underlying demand is still extremely high. Their overhead is crazy. So they... They are, they are running, and also they're making huge capital investments, uh, you know, with overseas operations. So you look at, like, I mean, those are all our customers, um, you know. So, they, yeah, so they're, they, but they've been running negative for many, many years running. So that's uh, what I'm sure. saying is, here mm-hmm. we have an environment right now where most people in our business are losing money. They are. The majority of the people in this sector right now yeah. are losing money. Yeah. And we have a glut of material. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm saying is, and you fit into this. I mean, that doesn't scare the heck out of you. The fact that right now there's huge amounts of equipment no, I, that I were think in the market uh, that are now like no, for you, like how much? No, you got to look at the market and where it's going. Okay. So we're at what, $5 billion right now. It, it is supposed to grow to $26, 27000000000 billion over See, the next several years. How does the leap from $5 billion to $25 billion happen in this environment? Not, not, every, not everybody deserves a, an extraction plant, and not everybody who's in it should be running one. They have no, you know, there's a lot of people without a business plan, seriously. And they went into it in the U.S. specifically just because they thought that it was going to be the next, uh, I'm going to make a million dollars or $2 million or $5 million next year. I mean, a lot of people are, so those are the people that you see that are falling out. The people who have a good business plan that's tied to existing customers that are, you know, either, either they have their own brand or they're supplying a brand, 
there are people making money right now in both hemp and in cannabis throughout the United States, no problem. And in Canada, same way. Well, Can, Canada is a little bit different on the uh, stock okay. exchange because it's, it's just not the same. I mean, they're, that, they're basically you, an investing mode there. You brought up Canada. And mm -hmm. are you familiar with Gin Canada? Yeah. Okay. It was the largest, what do you would call it, soil to shelf company in Kentucky. The yep. money came, initially came from Canada. Yep. They had their own brand. They had contracts mm -hmm. lined up and they went into chapter seven here three months ago. Yeah. They, yeah. But they and, also and they had all the built. things that you said. Yeah, maybe. Well, yeah, I, I agree, but they got, they got a little over ahead of themselves. They over, they overproduced. And, and that's I, I think, I, yeah. So that's where we're at now. Yeah. So but, the overproduction doesn't scare you any. No, the, I think overproduction on the, you know, the, the oils in there, I don't think it scares me because I, I think that the people with the, our customers, for example, and ourselves uh, with the uh, low operating costs where we have the margin and we, you know, there's certain amount of money. Once it's there, you have a sunk cost in your um, capital equipment, you're going, you're able to really survive. So I, I don't see it as a big issue. So many processing companies say that their systems are turnkey. Mm -hmm, and right. I have a problem with that for yeah. because it seems to me that I'm a bit of a clinician myself, mm -hmm. that the technician is always paramount. Right. Well, you know, let me, let me put it this way, you know, like, so a, a full turnkey system is basically from, from basically receiving all the way to the production of a CPG or whatever you're going to sell, right? Or whether it's bulk or a CPG. So um, really, if you're going to get a um, help with that, you really have to have all of the, you know, the right, the right guys on staff in order to really make that a full system. And uh, so, yeah, and it comes, starts off with like facility design and, you know, specifying of the facility all the way through to, you know, to actually commissioning the actual, um, you know, operation. So um, that's, that's typically, that's what we do. Um, but there are a lot of people who just buy, you know, single pieces of equipment. So, um, you know, when they buy pieces of equipment, you know, they, we commission those pieces of equipment within that uh, particular process and that's it. So, well, um, you know, it's just a matter of what the customer desires. Well, the thing about it is, I go to a bunch of these seminars mm -hmm. and expos, and invariably the technician is not really mentioned. It's a double-edged sword, technicians are. Um, so like, for example, I'm a chemist, right? I would not want a chemist to run a piece of equipment production-wise. Uh, that's simply because they're always gonna try to manipulate it or they're always gonna try to experiment with it. And from a production standpoint, we, we just need them to follow an instruction. So uh, what I typically tell our customers is uh, what you need from the standpoint of a technician is someone who's mechanically oriented, who can work with their hands, obviously. Um, they have the physical strength to work with their hands and then also mechanically oriented, someone who can... Mm, you know, drive a car, for example, and understand that there's something wrong with the engine just by listening. Okay, that's the kind of guy you want. And then someone who uh, is going to continuously, you know, be able to um, follow instructions and follow the uh, standard operating procedure. 
I have um, come in contact with is um, kind of the technologist and then the chemist. And then there's this, this guy with just a fresh slate. The issue with the chemist I've already mentioned is because he, he's trained to basically, you know, experiment with everything and it screws things up. So you got to keep them out of the extraction lab. And I like, I, I tell our customers, they say, look, you don't want a chemist running it, running the show there, keep them in the laboratory. If you're going to have something like that, you don't want to, the technologist comes with a, a different, sometimes some technologists are really great. And uh, you know, because they know, they know they bring to the party um, a lot of knowledge related to the, the art itself. Um, but also they come with a lot of bad habits. So there's, there's that as well. And a lot of our, for example, our customers are in like, a, they, they aspire to be a GMP. In other words, they, um, they make the investments in uh, quality systems and SOP systems and training and validation and all of those things that are required for GMP. They got all the equipment for it. A lot of our customers are doing that. Okay, um, with that type of a system, you know, the technologist wants to traverse all of that uh, in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, so I think some of the technologists are really great as long as they're adopting uh, the overall structure that the executives put in place. And then uh, some, but if they're not, then you got to really, because the bad habits sometimes come in. So you want to make sure that uh, you have some sort of a fresh slate. In my view, I've done a lot of training, uh, you know, of operators. Yeah, I like to have a fresh slate uh, so that I can say, okay, this is the thing that have to be done. Then we can certify them um, rather than having to re-educate bad habits. So th there's, there's a, there's a bunch of trade-offs, you know, good and bad with all of those options. And certainly you do not want a chemist running your system. I mean, I, I as a chemist, I would say you don't want that. <laughs> you don't want that to happen. So, well, one thing we haven't talked about though is knowledge of cannabis. Yeah. Okay. The thing I, I've talked to a person who was, you know, that, that analogy that a lot of people can make moonshine yeah. But very few people can make great moonshine. Right. And right. Isn't, well, does, but doesn't this, some of this have to do with the, the experience of being able to recognize, like I said, we're involved with processing a lot of different types of material. Right. And when it comes in, being able to recognize things if they're dirty, this, yeah. that, the other. And then also having an idea of the expectations of the final result. Am I getting a good result? How right. do I, and, and that's, isn't, to some extent, isn't that a learned behavior? Well, you try to bring them and codify those quality parameters in written documents and also in things that can be measured. Um, because ultimately, if you're relying on some person to tell you what quality is, you're, you're not going to be reproducible. Because well, the guy's not going to show up for the shift or the, he's not going to be there the next day or whatever. And then you're ending up having to now try to figure out how to reproduce what the technologist gave you. So um, a, lot of our, a lot of our clients are, are basically looking at it from a strict pharmaceutical standpoint. Okay. And, you know, they're saying, okay, well, hey, look, we, we have to have a reproducible product that's coming out every time this way with these particular, um, you know, quality metrics. And then we we assess whether or not we met those metrics and whether there be organoleptic or, um, you know, terpene profile or whatever it is, you can put those in there and, and it really um, becomes more of a science than an art. But there's also, like you say, there's also the, um, 
you know, the artisan. And I, I, I really appreciate those guys because those are the guys who are not necessarily doing the same thing every time, according to an SOP, every day in, day out. They're willing to try new things. They're, um, they're, they're being creative with their process. Uh, sometimes they're, they're mixing stuff up in the formulation side using different ways of um, coming up with, um, you know, solving process problems within their organization. So I think that they all bring value to the customer. But I know that from a manufacturing side and directors of operations or, you know, VPs of operations that I've, um, you know, dealt with, they, they don't want the people who are in, in there who are going to be switching stuff up. They usually put those into R&D function and then they can do all their, um, you know, creative stuff there. So how much do you actually deal with artisanal products? Well, I would say that uh, maybe 25% of our customers are, 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 you know, artisan, I would say are artisan types. Okay. And they're looking at, uh, you know, and the rest of them are more or less focused on production. So, um, and when you do focus on production, I think that that's where, where you're starting to hit those models, those operating cost models, and you're still really starting to drive them down because if you're, if you're looking at an artisan model, it's just more expensive to run, number one, because you're, you have more waste, you have less of a reproducible product, you're, you're trying more different things, you know, oh, that didn't work, so that's going to cost me some money. Okay, I'll put that over here. I can't sell that. Uh, stuff like that. So I think it's just a matter of what your business model is. And, you know, a lot of, like a lot of the customers that you, that you put out into the, into the world, whether it's in a, um, let's say we're, we sell to a wholesaler who's got like 700 stores or something. He wants the same thing for every store. He doesn't want to have like small amounts, um, you know, for every, every store. So that's more of a larger scale, you know, multi-state multi, net, multi -state type of organization. That's the other thing with multi-state organizations that are, deal with cannabis, you know, they also want uh, consistency in production. They don't want to have like, uh, you know, one guy over here uh, being creative and then the next guy over here, they want to have the same SOPs across their entire facility. That way they're consistent product. So basically you do industrial cannabis. Um, yeah, I would say, well, I don't know, industrial cannabis. I would say that the machines that we make are completely uh, amenable to any kind of artist, artisan. So, um, you know, what's nice about it is that you're able, you have full control over every measure. It's just, so if you want to change uh, the dials, you want to switch them up, you know, temperature, pressure, um, you know, gradients of any kind, uh, co-solvents, non-co-solvents, uh, you know, low temperature, high temperature, all kinds of things that people would normally do in an artisan format, you can do. Uh, it's the only thing is that the, uh, the people who are doing the more manufacturing oriented stuff, they're, they're taking all those parameters they're validating them for consistency and then freezing them so that they get consistent products that they can formulate with. So that, that's probably the main difference. I have dominated this. I'm going to ask my cohorts in crime if they have any questions and I'm sorry to just pop that on you. Do you find your customers are more apt to go for speed over efficiency or is it always a constant compromise? Uh, there's always a constant compromise. There's always, it's a, it's a triple constraint type of thing. So typically, you know, people are always optimizing selectivity, speed, and throughput. There's three things and there's always a trade-off no matter what technique you're doing. I did have a question about, um, you say that a lot of your customers are extracting for CBG. I've heard that a couple times. Yeah. Um, 
is that an accurate representation of or what percentage of customers do you have really just looking to extract for CBG this year versus CBD? Yeah, I would say this year it's going to be big. I, in other words, that uh, there's a lot of the CBD guys that are going over to CBG. Um, have you guys dealt with Delta 8? I know that's kind of a hot topic lately. Yes. Are you well, guys I want to go that? back to the CBG. Yeah. You know, we've had stuff on shelves for since 19, uh, 2016. Yeah. And, and whatever. CBG in it, right? Yeah. yeah. I haven't had one store owner ask for a CBG product yet. Uh, I, I, you know what? I, I kind of agree with you on that. I, it's like, uh, you know, I think that people are doing it and then when they do it, it's going to be like, uh, there's going to be a whole swirl of social activity around it. Um, you know, people are going to start to push it from a sales perspective. Um, you know, it I feels that, almost like it's grabbing at straws. It, yeah. I, I think it's going to be real because people are, you know, there you have all these, it becomes like um, a big echo chamber and then people just start talking about it. They talk about it more and more and more. And it's been around for a long time, but it also, um, you know, the strains haven't really been out there very so that you could get like a lot of quantities of it um, until, you know, f maybe fairly recently, unless you can help me because I'm not too familiar with all the strains that are out there. Maybe there's been a high CBG well, strain out there that I don't know about, but. Dr. John, the reason I'm mentioning that is because you brought up Delta 8, right? Yeah. In our stores, we don't have anybody asking for CBG, but we got everybody asking for DA. For Delta 8, yeah. Well, okay. Well, it's coming. I guess we'll see what happens, right? Um, Does Extract Lab have currently an extraction machine for Delta 8, or is that in the works? No, that's a conversion. So you can, you know, you can, you have to convert in fact, I have a podcast that's coming up all about Delta 8. So for people who want to come and, and listen to me on that. But um, yeah, no, that's a conversion. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can also CBD. You can go all the way from CBD all the way through. Um, so some people are converting it over. Um, I think that, you know, I wish that the industry would not do this, um, to tell you the truth, because they're just pushing the, pushing the envelope. Um, there's going to be you know, somebody's going to get, you know, whacked on it, um, you know. And so, you know, if you think about it from the point of view of, um, you know, sitting, standing in front of a court and, you know, saying, oh, well, this is actually Delta 8, sir. You know, I mean, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a very good defense to me. <laughs> so I just, uh, I wish that, I wish that we wouldn't push our luck, you know, let's, let's stick with, CBD, let's stick with the less than 0.3%. We've been uh, Delta 9. We've been doing really great with that. And now, now we got so many people now trying to just, you know, get into Delta 8. It's, um, I think it's a fool's errand myself. Um, but I might actually be a fool. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll try We'll make a little bit, but because we have, um, you know, process where we take out the, the THC and CBD used in chromatography. And, um, you know, so we have, um, we typically manifest it as waste and, uh, you know, so that's the way that goes. And we, we might try to make some, but I don't know if commercially we're not going to, you know, sell kilos of it. What about you guys? Well, we're in the throes of now investigating it okay. because as my partner, Lee Crabtree at Tennessee Homegrown, yeah. uh, his illustrious words, if people really like it, they'll like it a year from now. Right. That's true. And That's so true. what we're doing is we're just looking at the 
because it is a conversion. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're looking at the different acids, you know, do we go with citric acid? Do we right. do sulfuric? Do we do hydrochloric? Right. We're probably leaning towards citric. Yep. But it's one of those things, we'll do some tests, probably spend way more on lab reports than we should. Yep. And if we get a product that we're comfortable with, we'll probably do a little small test, you know. See how it know. works, yeah? Yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, it may be, may be big. I think, what do you think about just, you know, pushing our luck as an industry? I don't, you know. Well, our, we had an interesting thing happening here in Tennessee in uh, February 2018. Mm -hmm. There was an overzealous district attorney in down in the county where we are situated. Yeah. And went and rounded up 21 store owners that sell CBD. Mm -hmm. They had a horrible backlash. Mm -hmm. It seemed that the people here, you know, just literally showed up, said, why are you putting these people in jail? And so there, the, the, established legal environment here backed off and backed off big uh, you know because we all did the same thing when you said about delta yeah you know, we right. know a guy who used to be in the tennessee bureau of investigation is now one of the biggest sellers of d8 in tennessee mm -hmm. and he you know basically right now law enforcement in this state does not have a dog in that hunt they do yeah. not want to do another go to court because here in the state of Tennessee, it is a Delta nine state. And it, right. it says that you are correct, sir. Are there going to be some people who says, well, now people are getting high on this and yeah. will there be enough pressure on politicians to go in and change the law? And yeah. so that's, but right now it's a loophole that a bunch of people are driving trucks through. Yeah, true enough. And I don't know, you know, like, uh, on the on the clinical side, we kind of know about the side effects, um, you know, or the secondary effects of of Delta Nine uh, because they're so well studied. I mean, you know, you really can't die from it, but there are some psychotic, uh, you know, psychosis that's possible from it. Um, you know, and some different people are going to react in different ways. Um, you know, so the other thing that people need to be thinking about is what kind of product insurance they want to, um, you know, carry for that type of uh, you know, product that doesn't have that well of uh, established knowledge. So, um, you know, I think that there are some things that uh, from a business perspective, people should think about. It's, it's probably, you know, it's, it's, if it sounds too good to be true, it typically is, um, you know, that type of thing. But other than that, go, go, you know, go slow um, and, you know, choose your battles wisely, right? That's what, that's what we always tell our customers. That sounds like a great place to wind this up. Yeah. So you, this is usually a period where we let people like you plug anything you want to plug at this point. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, well, I already told you about my podcast. Um, so, you know, that's just, it's purely educational. Um, and we've done every, topics all the way from legal topics, GMP topics, all the way through uh, to, um, you know, how to, how to basically make a, a, a tincture, how to create Delta-8. Um, you know, so it's just purely educational for people. Uh, I've written a lot uh, also in the form of guides. So you can go to our website, extraktlab.com. And also all those um, calculators, we are, we have an, we're the number one company for calculators. Uh, we have a pro forma calculator. 
We have a, a operating cost calculator, operating cost uh, comparison calculators for ethanol and for CO2 and all kinds of things like that that are really helpful for the customer to really understand, okay, here's, here's, where, here's where my costs are and here's, here's why, you know, A versus B and just a lot of different things. We have um, yield calculators. We have um, hemp field yield calculators. So, um, yeah, and uh, we offer prizes if you guys find mistakes or something and, or, you know, um, you know, assumptions in there, you need to know what they are. We'll give you some swag uh, if you find out, well, you know, it turns out that we're wrong. So on something, so. Can't thank you enough. Yeah. Thank this you guys. It's been great. Right. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee homegrown and uppercut media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Full Contact Cannabis is created by Jarbo, the old hemp farmer. Audio recordist, Abby McCullough. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com.